I pray that everyone who's watching from home <clears throat> is in good health. And we definitely look forward to seeing you soon. I do not have any commercials to give <laughs> at this moment. <laughs> but that was, if you want to count a commercial, my commercial. So when I was last here, I brought the introduction uh, to the Gospel of John. And I felt the introduction was necessary for our time, especially for being able to get into the gospel properly. And with that being said, our sermon text today, we'll be looking at the first uh, three verses of the Gospel of John, which I simply titled it, The Gospel of John. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Again, the prospect of this sermon is to give us now the foundation at which John is going to start uh, his gospel. And it's probably predicated that if I even had to go ahead and create a subtitle to this, especially for these three verses, I probably would have properly subtitled subtitled it, He Always Existed. So with that being said, let us now read, if you take your Bibles, John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. Shall we now look to the Lord our God in prayer? Father, we give thanks on this Sabbath day, for many are still seeking for the Messiah. And yet you revealed him by your word. Oh, the word, the very word of which all things came into existence. I ask now, Lord, that you be with your servant as you feed and teach your people. And for them, may they have a childlike love and a willing mind to receive your word, the very word of which nothing came into existence but without it. It's in Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So, just taking a small trip down memory lane in regards to the introduction you did realize I did pull that Paulini excerpt from Acts 17. I will have more Paulini excerpts to pull, but as of this point, I just want to bring your mindset to remembrance. And it was with good reason, especially with verse number 28. I made the very profound statement, in him we move and exist and live. Then... Upon this, we do understand the four concepts in regards to the four accounts that the Gospels were written in. And in particular, we must not discredit them because two were apostles and the other two were not. I gave distinct and clear facts as to why this should be taken as authoritative and credited. So then... 
Out of the four, what makes John's account different? I brought up the aspect of the intimacy that he's had with the Christ. That one intimacy to show the closeness. And the reason why his gospel and his account cannot be seen and seen light as the others. Not saying they're not harmonic in one shape or form or another, but the sheer fact that in his writings, he has given us openings and secrets that the other I'm sorry, evangelists were not privy to. So with that being said, let us now segue into the book. I do not have points. There is not a point one, point two, point three, point four here. This is actually a exegesis and an expounding on the actual book. So consider when we will be looking at the verses, rather the clauses that are in the verses, let's interpret the verses in context of the passage as a whole. Let us understand and we'll be utilizing the progression of revelation, especially if it can provide us clarity. And then once we see the harmony with other scriptures, we can then understand clear in effect what the evangelist is trying to convey. And then also, I will make sure that whatever may not seem clear, the passages that I will provide in argument should provide some clarity. Just a point of emphasis so that way you know and you kind of can track me as we are moving along the book. So our first clause and what we read in verse 1. In the beginning was the word. We can see from this excerpt that God existed before the earth began. God does not need time and space. It exists in him. And now mind you that this is being a gospel given the good news to show that the God-man dwelled with mankind bodily. It is in this notion that is also to be understood that he was there in the beginning. Now, this is a high mystery because so much heresy has stemmed from the fact that they could not conceive of the fact that God in himself can dwell within a man's body. I mean, we've heard it throughout the time of history through the church that this seemed to be a point of contention. But rather make it a contention, John makes the divinity of the Christ clear from the beginning. Now, let me bring to you this small analogy to give you a concept of why this, this concept of divinity should not be a big issue. But let me try to make this as easy and simplistic as possible. We've heard of the adage, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Now, if you've heard my preaching at various times, you always know, you can tell a man's ideology given what is coming out of his mouth. So if you analyze the question, you can already state or see the question already comes with a contradiction to Christian ideology. To oppose the question, what came first, the chicken or the egg, is to oppose the question, well, what did God create it first? 
what did he deem to seem to be right? So, to answer this, or if you would like to know how to answer the person who brings this up to you, Genesis 1, 20-23, Then God said, Let the water tend with the swarms of living creatures. The birds, let them fly above the earth in the open, in the expanse of the heaven. Then God, in verse 21, then dictated and gave order to which, when he created the great sea creatures and every living creatures that moved, he gave to them order according to their kind. And he saw that it was good. Then, going to answer indirect, the chicken or the egg. Well, if you've already seen from what I stated, the chicken obviously had to come first. But then, for the Lord to say in verse 22, be fruitful and multiply. It tells you the direction of which living beings came to be. You had the chicken, and then you had the egg. Now, this analogy here is not to go ahead and create a didactic in terms of actually pointing the divinity of Christ. It is actually just to make this easy and as simplistic as it should be. But nonetheless, people have had issues with this concept. So, I'm trying to bring to you the bigger picture here. God existed before the world began. And for John, the apostle, to bring this point across, he makes it a stamp telling you this is the foundation of which you need to have and how you need to move forward in your faith, especially in the Gospels. Acts 17, 24 to 25, a Paulinian excerpt here is going to give to us clear and decisive understanding and even brings to joke that though I use a simple analogy note here how Paul gives clarity as I stated before verse 24 the God who made the world and everything that is in it since he is the Lord of heaven and earth he does not dwell in temple made by hands nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything why with verse 25 continuing since he himself gives to all people life breath and all things you cannot exist the world cannot exist without god making it to be so so then, he made the world. For, as John pointed in the beginning, was the word. But then, how did he come to be so? Well, with John explaining that in the beginning was the word, he spoke it into existence. And mind you, I brought up Genesis 1, 20-23 to show you that the verdict of how God brought the creatures in. The Hebrew says, in English translation, then God said. And for him to have such gravity and the consequence of his spoken word, it became so. Now, when you do read the first verse in Genesis 1, 
It states, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Say so like, aha, pastor. It seems to me that God did something outside the realm of just saying it. Ah, au contraire, mon frère. For you see, by Genesis 1, 3, 6, 9, 14, 20, 24, and 26, the literal meaning and understanding that God said it to be so, it came. But of which, if you want to go down that route, then you make God to be a human. For God is a spirit. And mind you, I know of no spirit that has hands and feet and eyes and in a body. Because for you to do so, you have limited him. But note what Paul is stating when I read to you Acts 17, 24 to 25. How can you limit the creator? He does not need anything from you. Because he is the source. He is the giver of life. And to all things. In fact, Job 10, 4, 5 states, and I quote, Do you have eyes of flesh? Or do you see as mankind sees? Are your days like the days of a mortal? Or are your years like a man's years? Hmm. So then, if we are to look at the Lord as a spirit and deem it to be so by the convention and the consequence of what was stated in verses 3, 6, 9, 14, 20, 24, and 26 in Genesis, for God to say it, it is a presence of his thought, and from his thought, his word, and in his word, it came to be what he thought for it to be. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18 states, and to show harmony from the old to the new, Paul states, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But we all with unveiled faces. Now remember, when Moses met the Lord in all his glory, his face had to have been veiled. But now, in the metaphor that is stated with Pauline thinking here, unveiled faces looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, now being transformed into the same image, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. See here? To make it very simple, by good and necessary consequence and deduction from Genesis 1, he spoke the earth and the universe into existence. Do you want a literal meaning? Sure, I will give you one. Ezekiel 12, 25. For I, the Lord, will speak whatever word I speak, and it will be performed. It will no longer be delayed, for in your days, your rebellious house, I will speak the word and perform it, declares the Lord God. Now, it does seem like a lot to stem from one clause, but 
I feel like I'll be slack in not providing that foundation in which the argument is made by the apostle here. So with that being said, from that being said, in the beginning was the word. The very word we can see in essence, the God-man pre-incarnated. And by this, the second person of the Trinity, of the triune body, it, it's a declaration to everyone that the Son, God the Son, was there all along. And of which, when we transition now into the next portion, we're going to see something that comes into clarity. That the world came into being by the wisdom that is the will of God. First, Acts 17, 26 through 27 states. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Verse 27, that they will seek God if perhaps they might feel around for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Why? I'm going to allow Calvin to convey some of this some more. See, the evangelist, as Calvin calls John here, is calling the Son of God the Word for the simple reason, it appears. Because first, he, being Christ, is the eternal wisdom and will of God. But secondly, he is the living image of his purpose. For as being the Word that is said among men, the image of the mind, it is not so inappropriate to apply this to God and to say that he reveals himself to us by his word. How true. For we see in the God-man, the Godhead dwell fully. Well then, let's look at the Old Testament here to show based on this wisdom that Calvin is spoken of here. Jeremiah 10, 12 states, he hath made the earth by his power and established the world by his wisdom and has stretched out the heavens by his discretion. And now from the old and on to the new, the show Harmony, Colossians 1.19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on the earth or things in heaven. So you see, simply put, to close on this particular uh, portion of our clause here, in the beginning was the word it was a declaration to everyone and for John to show the divinity comes with a stamp that God himself had a clear plan for the way creation was to come. And if you think about it in regards to the process of 
the way we see life and how it comes about, we have to do certain things from a physical standpoint. But the amount of power it is to just speak it into existence. Again, I can't stress enough. I don't think our own frailty of mind can imagine this. So now, after laying this portion of the first clause and the first verse there, let's go ahead and close the first verse by going to the next portion of the clauses, which states, the word was with God and the word was God. Now, mind you, through all that I have stated in a lot that was packed in that first clause, you should see in consequence where I am going here and why John can make this statement. Again, God existed before time and space and through Christ being the fullness of the Godhead of which he embodies, it puts punctuation that the God-man and the Godhead are in harmony with one thought, essence, and being. Our confession states in chapter 2, section 3a, In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Of God the Son, the Christ, the Messiah, his internality was acknowledged. Micah 5.2 And thou, Bethlehem, art little to be among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee, Shall he come forth unto me that shall be the ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been from the beginning and from everlasting. So therefore, as evidence is shown here, he precedes all creations, men and angels. But this is not to just say that in this mode of expression, God, the word was always with God. What I'm trying to convey here is the distinction in the fact that the Christ and his distinct personality is different from that of the Father. Now, that's not to say they all think different thoughts. That's just to say that this is not one being with a personality disorder. Because if you want to go down that route, that was an error that was postulated by Sibelius, where, well, for some reason, being one being, the God the Godhead will either turn one time into the Father, then another time into the Son, and then another time into the Holy Spirit. No, that is not the case. So, here, with the clause, the word was with God and the word was God is just to show the evidence of the distinction in the personality that is the Christ. I bring to you now here, it's evident. Psalms 2 verse 7, it states, I will announce the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have fathered you. And how about from the old to the new? Hebrews 1 3. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by what? The word of his power. When he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty 
on high. So it is clear here. There's not a personality disorder. There's a distinction. And the way that the Godhead has been shaped. This is the high mystery that John is trying to clarify to the church at the time. Do not fall into the errors. Do not be swayed by these men who speak lies. So, if it is the case that the Godhead operates in unity and in harmony, then we also must make the understanding that their decreed facilities, faculties actually, were made to an understanding of how they were to operate before even our own existence. Remember, how do we see the economical view of redemption played out through those scriptures? Ephesians 1 verse 4. Blessed be God the Father our, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, in context of this whole process, there is another aspect of this that I can go off of, which is when you're looking at the study of the being of God, from an ontological standpoint, you can actually look to John to kind of make that argument going forward. But for being an exegesis and expository piece, that's not where I'm going to go from here. But nonetheless, it can be best served to show that, and like I said in my intro, in an argument to Ibian and Serenthius to clearly think that the God-man was not divine, John is making it a point of emphasis that that cannot be so. I mean, look at that, those, that first few clauses. The Son has always existed. And to even close the first verse, the Word was with God, furnished proof that the Son did not become God, he was indeed God from all eternity. Now, with verse 1, like bringing that to a close, let's now segue and get to verse number 2 because our foundation is now laid. We should have, based on what I stated, some clarity. And then being with verse number two in our foundation being laid, it's even appropriate that the apostle goes ahead and he actually provides a consequential word, which is verse two, and it shows what we've just learned. He states in verse two, he was in the beginning with God, the personhood, the personality now being distinct. It was evident what the word was. I bring to you John Gill as he states, The eternity of Christ, his distinct personality and proper deity, it is through that phrase. 
For in the beginning, it is to be joined to each of the above. And so to prove not only his eternal, I'm sorry, eternal existence, but his internal existence with the Father and his eternal deity. With that being said, and everything that's been laid and founded, let's now come to verse number three. All things came into being through him. Now that the divinity of Christ has been grounded, it's a show by this verse, the apostle is going to prove the divinity of Christ from his works. For you see, when the assertion is applied to his personhood, and that the Son is compared with the Father. He is distinguished by this particular mark. All things came into being through him. Why? Because the Father made all things by the Son. And that all things that are made by God through the Son is no longer under any false pretense, but that the world was created by the word of God as it came forth. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Do we not hear? And if you familiar with the Psalms, it's in chapter 2 of Psalms in verse number 8. Ask it of me, and I will certainly give the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possessions. Why? How can you give a man a possessions? How does this tie back to it? Because at the end of it all, to take this as an inheritance, it is going back to who it was properly asserted to. Remember, I said it again, through all the arguments, the Godhead dwelled before the space of, uh, before time and space even came into existence. But in that fashion, they had to have decreed on how one was going to facilitate through the expansion of time, their duties and faculties. I brought it up to you in Ephesians 1, 1 through 4. They made that decision before time and space, but now we see it, the way scripture is played out, how they were supposed to work out from the economical basis. John Gill again notes here, Christ being the author, author of the new creation, nor any contradiction to him being the author of the old creation. It is attended by here all things, meaning heaven, its created inhabitants, the air, stars, third heavens, and the earth, all therein, the sea, everything that is in that, the word, the Son of God was what? The efficient cause that all these came into being. He wasn't just a mere instrument, instrument by which the formation was done. He was the cause. And it goes right back into where we started with the first verse to show 
by being the word and tying it to the Godhead for it to be so he performed it and of it came life and all things associated. Well, we now look at the portion here and of which this verse is supposed to help in regards to tying into the peace that if all things came through him, then note the adage onto this and apart from him, the antithesis here, and apart from him, not even one thing into being has come into being. It could not exist. It must dwell all in him. You see, if that were to be the case, the continual consequence of this thought, we have to attribute it to the first clause. Because you see here, the apostle is making very clear the presence of Christ in the creation order of mankind. The divinity that must be associated with the God-man. It's almost the same pragmatically of what point would salvation even be proper to mankind if the God-man could not have a distinction from his creation? Is it just because a man decided to sacrifice his life for ills and gains? No, that could not be the case. The death could not be done in vain. And sometimes you hear about the arguments that are portrayed and you hear them throughout the history of the church and even till now that they thought God could have died on the cross. No! The body? But then for God to show, and this is why the argument here is very important about the divinity. The argument here to show that God, <laughs> the world exists in him, is a point of emphasis that he cannot be limited. He cannot be contained. Everything works within his own order and confound. Now, when we get to that little portion of discussing that, I will say that towards the earlier in the chapters because we're right now trying to focus on the first three verses. But that's that's sometimes you've seen the the thought process and like how can you come to that conclusion? Pragmatically, it doesn't even make sense. And we're not trying to be pragmatic people because obviously the, the spirit must enlighten you in order to understand what the scriptures is conveying. But you can't be slack to think for a second that his divinity and how it was embodied in a man, that shows a difference in why he can move forward and do the miracles. 
and perform the acts and to speak with boldness. Speak with clarity. Speak the truth. You're going to see all this as we continue forward in the, in the next chapters. It's kind of fun to get ahead, but I can't. <laughs> so my responsibility is to stay within the confounds of the first three verses. But nonetheless, the Son, the Father, and the Spirit are all in creation. And to the extent of what the Apostle concern is with this particular verse, is that the Son is to everything that is made. For without Him, not a single aspect of creation can be made. So, a question can be stated then. Did He have a hand in creating the angels? And see where I'm going here. Both the elect and unelect. Yes, he did. You see, Job 26, 13. His spirit garnished the heavens and from his own hand has formed the crooked serpent. So you can't say everything that transpired in the Genesis was outside the realms and ideas of God. For Adam, he may have thought, well, why is this serpent talking? But for God, that is his created creature. And he had a tent for that created creature. And everything he did was not outside his thinking. So do not be bashful to think for a second that he exists outside his world. No. As, is, as the Proverbs put it, that will be a fool. Or, if you're in Christianity and you're having some issues with your conviction about the divinity of Christ and the triune um, body of the Godhead, then I think you have some very deep-rooted uh, study to do because you are acting foolish. All this being said, the main concern here, as I'm putting this to a close, is that with our first portion of the Gospel of John, John is making it very pointed, and he's making it very, very clear, without a doubt, the divinity of Christ and his position in the Godhead should come with no argument. Hebrews 1 verse 2 states, In these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir to all things. Why? Through whom he also made the world. I gave you the arguments in Psalms 2. And I hope I made clarity that God is not to be limited when I spoke about Job. That our Lord is a spirit indeed. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18. And to see that everything from his creation, Acts 17, 26 to 27. From the old, Jeremiah 10 to Jeremiah 10, verse 12, to the harmony, to see the fullness of the Godhead dwell bodily in him. For it was through him to reconcile all things to himself. Colossians 1, 
19. I hope you leave today with a better confidence and understanding of who the God-man is. He's not this pacifist who goes through time and space and operates like the way the humanist wants you to think about their worldly gods. He is an active God. He has been there and he existed before time began and he will continue to exist when time ends. The only issue is in our frailty and short period of space and mindset, we can't imagine some of the mysteries that conceptualizes with the way the Godhead is being conveyed. But what mysteries are provided, what the portion of God's will is shown, especially in the Gospels, we should take comfort to that, knowing that God is not looking to hide himself, but with love reveal himself. I made that point in the introduction in Luke 24. He opened those men's eyes to see the scriptures. To not just those men, but also later on to his apostles. The spirit. As he dictated John to write this, uh, uh, sorry, this gospel is showing here that same evidence. And this is why I only chose these first three verses because we need to have our foundation laid. The divinity of Christ cannot be questioned. And I thank God that in his providence and care, he used this man to provide this to us. In the next sermon, we will look at verses four through five. Two verses. And why would I split two verses in particular? Now we know he always existed. But in the concept of verses four and five, you will find that in him we have life. Shall I look to the Lord God in prayer?